Chapter Twelve, Part Three of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Twelve: The Big Stick and the Square Deal, Part Three. It is no easy matter to balance the claims of justice and mercy in such cases. In these three cases, all of which I had personal cognizance, I disagreed radically with the views my successors took, and with the views which many respectable men took, who, in these and similar cases, both while I was in office and afterwards, urged me to show, or asked others to show, clemency. It then seemed to me, and it now seems to me, that such clemency is from the larger standpoint a gross wrong to the men and women of the country. One of the former special assistants of the district attorney, Mr. W. Cleveland Runyon, in commenting bitterly on the release of Hike and Morse on account of their health, pointed out that their health apparently became good when once they themselves became free men, and added, The commutation of these sentences amounts to a direct interference with the administration of justice by the courts. Hike got a $25,000 salary and has escaped his imprisonment, but what about the six eighteen-dollar-a-week checkers, who were sent to jail, one of them a man of more than sixty? It is cases like this that create discontent and anarchy. They make it seem plain that there is one law for the rich, and another for the poor man, and I for one will protest. In dealing with Hike the individual, or Morse, or any other individual, it is necessary to emphasize the social aspects of his case. The moral of the Hike case, as has been well said, is how easy it is for a man in modern corporate organizations to drift into wrongdoing. The moral restraints are loosened in the case of a man like Hike, by the insulation of himself from the sordid details of crime, through industrially coerced intervening agents. Professor Ross has made the penetrating observation that distance disinfects dividends. It also weakens individual responsibility, particularly on the part of the very managers of large business, who should feel it most acutely. One of the officers of the Department of Justice who conducted the suit, and who inclined to the side of mercy in the matter, nevertheless writes, Hike is a beautiful illustration of mental and moral obscuration in the business life of an otherwise valuable member of society. Hike had an ample share in the guidance of the affairs of the American Sugar Company, and we are apt to have a foreshortened picture of his responsibility, because he operated from the easy coin of vantage of executive remoteness. It is difficult to say to what extent he did, directly or indirectly, profit by the sordid practices of his company. But the social damage of an individual in his position may be just as deep, whether merely the zest of the game or hard cash be his dominant motive. I have coupled the cases of the big banker and the sugar trust official and the case of the man convicted of a criminal assault on a woman. All of the criminals were released from penitentiary sentences on grounds of ill health. The offences were typical of the worst crimes committed at the two ends of the social scale. One offence was a crime of brutal violence. The other offences were crimes of astute corruption. All of them were offences which, in my judgment, were of such a character that clemency towards the offender worked grave injustice to the community as a whole, injustice so grave that its effects might be far-reaching in their damage. Every time that rape or criminal assault on a woman is pardoned, and anything less than the full penalty of the law exacted, a premium is put on the practice of lynching such offenders. Every time a big-moneyed offender, who naturally excites interest and sympathy, and who has many friends, is excused from serving a sentence which a man of less prominence and fewer friends would have to serve, justice is discredited in the eyes of plain people. 
and to undermine faith in justice is to strike at the foundation of the Republic. As for ill-health, it must be remembered that few people are as healthy in prison as they would be outside, and there should be no discrimination among criminals on this score. Either all criminals who grow unhealthy should be let out, or none. Pardons must sometimes be given in order that the cause of justice may be served, but in cases such as these I am considering, while I know that many amiable people differ from me, I am obliged to say that in my judgment the pardons work far-reaching harm to the cause of justice." Among the big corporations themselves, even where they did wrong, there was a wide difference in the moral obliquity indicated by the wrongdoer. There was a wide distinction between the offences committed in the case of the Northern Securities Company, and in the offences because of which the Sugar Trust, the Tobacco Trust, and the Standard Oil Trust were successfully prosecuted under my administration. It was vital to destroy the Northern Securities Company, but the men creating it had done so in an open and above-board fashion acting under what they, and most of the members of the bar, thought to be the law established by the Supreme Court in the Knight Sugar case. But the Supreme Court, in its decree dissolving the Standard Oil and Tobacco Trusts, condemned them in the severest language for moral turpitude, and an even severer need of condemnation should be visited on the Sugar Trust. However, all the trusts and big corporations against which we proceeded, which included in their directorates practically all the biggest financiers in the country, joined in making the bitterest assaults on me and on my administration. Of their actions I wrote as follows to Attorney General Bonaparte, who had been a peculiarly close friend and adviser through the period covered by my public life in high office, and who, together with Attorney General Moody, possessed the same understanding sympathy with my social and industrial program that was possessed by such officials as Strauss, Garfield, H. K. Smith, and Pinchot. The letter runs, January 2nd, 1908. My dear Bonaparte, I must congratulate you on your admirable speech at Chicago. You said the very things it was good to say at this time. What you said bore a special weight because it represented what you had done. You have shown by what you have actually accomplished that the law is enforced against the wealthiest corporation, and the richest and most powerful manager or manipulator of that corporation, just as resolutely and fearlessly as against the humblest citizen." The Department of Justice is now in very fact the Department of Justice, and justice is meted out with an even hand to great and small, rich and poor, weak and strong. Those who have denounced you in the action of the Department of Justice are either misled, or else are the very wrongdoers, and the agents of the very wrongdoers, who have for so many years gone scot-free and flouted the laws with impunity. Above all, you are to be congratulated upon the bitterness felt and expressed towards you by the representatives and agents of the great law-defying corporations of immense wealth, who, until within the last half-dozen years, have treated themselves and have expected others to treat them as being beyond and above all possible check from the law. It was time to say something, for the representatives of predatory wealth, of wealth accumulated on a giant scale by iniquity, by wrongdoing in many forms, by plain swindling, by oppressing wage-workers, by manipulating securities, by unfair and unwholesome competition, and by stock-jobbing, in short, by conduct abhorrent to every man of ordinary decent conscience, have during the last few months made it evident that they are banded together to work for a reaction, to endeavour to overthrow and discredit all who honestly administer the law, and to secure a return to the days when every unscrupulous wrongdoer could do what he wished, unchecked, provided he had enough money. They attack you because they know your honesty and fearlessness, and dread them. 
the enormous sums of money these men have at their control enable them to carry on an effective campaign. They find their tools in a portion of the public press, including especially certain of the great New York papers. They find their agents in some men in public life, now and then occupying, or having occupied, positions as high as senator or governor, in some men in the pulpit, and, most melancholy of all, in a few men on the bench. By gifts to colleges and universities they are occasionally able to subsidize in their own interests some head of an educational body, who, save only a judge, should of all men be most careful to keep his skirts clear from the taint of such corruption. There are ample material rewards for those who serve with fidelity the mammon of unrighteousness, but they are dearly paid for by that institution of learning, whose head, by example and precept, teaches the scholars who sit under him that there is one law for the rich and another for the poor. The amount of money the representatives of the great moneyed interests are willing to spend can be gauged by their recent publication broadcast throughout the papers of this country from the Atlantic to the Pacific of huge advertisements attacking with envenomed bitterness the administration's policy of warring against successful dishonesty, advertisements that must have cost enormous sums of money. This advertisement, as also a pamphlet called The Roosevelt Panic, and one or two similar books and pamphlets, are written especially in the interest of the Standard Oil and Harriman combinations, but also defend all the individuals and corporations of great wealth that have been guilty of wrongdoing. From the railroad rate law to the pure food law, every measure for honesty in business that has been pressed during the last six years has been opposed by these men on its passage and in its administration, with every resource that bitter and unscrupulous craft could suggest, and the command of an almost unlimited money secure. These men do not themselves speak aright, they hire others to do their bidding. Their spirit and purpose are made clear alike by the editorials of the papers owned in, or whose policy is dictated by, Wall Street, and by the speeches of public men who, as senators, governors, or mayors, have served these, their masters, to the cost of the plain people. At one time one of their writers or speakers attacks the rate law as the cause of the panic. He is, whether in public life or not, usually a clever corporation lawyer, and he is not so foolish a being as to believe in the truth of what he says. He has too closely represented the railroads not to know well that the Hepburn rate bill has helped every honest railroad, and has hurt only the railroads that regarded themselves as above the law. At another time, one of them assails the administration for not imprisoning people under the Sherman antitrust law, for declining to make what he well knows, in view of the actual attitude of juries, as shown in the tobacco trust cases and in San Francisco, in one or two of the cases brought against corrupt businessmen would have been the futile endeavor to imprison defendants whom we are actually able to find. He raises the usual clamor, raised by all who object to the enforcement of the law, that we are fining corporations instead of putting the heads of the corporations in jail, and he states that this does not really harm the chief offenders. Were this statement true, he himself would not be found attacking us. The extraordinary violence of the assault upon our policy contained in speeches like these, in the articles in the subsidized press, in such huge advertisements and pamphlets as those above referred to, and the enormous sums of money spent in these various ways, give a fairly accurate measure of the anger and terror which our actions have caused the corrupt men of vast wealth to feel in the very marrow of their being. The man thus attacking us is usually, like so many of his fellows, either a great lawyer or a paid editor who takes his commands from the financiers and his arguments from their attorneys. 
If the former, he has defended many malefactors, and he knows well that, thanks to the advice of lawyers like himself, a certain kind of modern corporation has been turned into an admirable instrument, by which to render it well-nigh impossible to get at the really guilty man, so that in most cases the only way of punishing the wrong is by fining the corporation, or by proceeding personally against some of the minor agents. These lawyers and their employers are the men mainly responsible for this state of things, and their responsibility is shared with the legislators who ingeniously oppose the passing of just and effective laws, and with those judges whose one aim seems to be to construe such laws so that they cannot be executed. Nothing is sillier than this outcry on behalf of the innocent stockholders in the corporations. We are besought to pity the Standard Oil Company for a fine relatively far less great than the fines every day inflicted in the police courts upon multitudes of pushcart peddlers and other petty offenders, whose woes never extort one word from the men whose withers are wrung by the woes of the mighty. The stockholders have the control of the corporation in their own hands. The corporation officials are elected by those holding the majority of the stock, and can keep office only by having behind them the good will of these majority stockholders. They are not entitled to the slightest pity if they deliberately choose to resign into the hands of great wrongdoers the control of the corporations in which they own the stock. Of course, innocent people have become involved in these big corporations and suffer because of the misdeeds of their criminal associates. Let these innocent people be careful not to invest in corporations where those in control are not men of probity, men who respect the laws. Above all, let them avoid the men who make it their one effort to evade or defy the laws. But if these honest, innocent people are in the majority in any corporation, they can immediately resume control and throw out of the directory the men who misrepresent them. Does any man for a moment suppose that the majority stockholders of the Standard Oil are others than Mr. Rockefeller and his associates themselves, and the beneficiaries of their wrongdoing? When the stock is watered so that the innocent investors suffer, a grave wrong is indeed done to those innocent investors, as well as to the public. But the public men, lawyers, and editors, to whom I refer, do not under these circumstances express sympathy for the innocent. On the contrary, they are the first to protest with frantic vehemence against our efforts by law to put a stop to overcapitalization and stock-watering. The apologists of successful dishonesty always declaim against any effort to punish or prevent it, on the ground that such effort will unsettle business. It is they who by their acts have unsettled business, and the very men raising this cry spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in securing, by speech, editorial, book, or pamphlet, the defense by misstatement of what they have done. And yet, when we correct their misstatements by telling the truth, they declaim against us for breaking silence, lest values be unsettled. They have hurt honest businessmen, honest working men, honest farmers, and now they clamor against the truth being told. The keynote of all these attacks upon the effort to secure honesty in business and in politics is expressed in a recent speech, in which the speaker stated that prosperity had been checked by the effort for the moral regeneration of the business world, an effort which he denounced as unnatural, unwarranted, and injurious, and for which he stated the panic was the penalty. The morality of such a plea is precisely as great as if made on behalf of the men caught in a gambling establishment, when that gambling establishment is raided by the police. 
If such words mean anything, they mean that those whose sentiments they represent stand against the effort to bring about a moral regeneration of business, which will prevent a repetition of the insurance, banking, and street railroad scandals in New York, a repetition of the Chicago and Alton deal, a repetition of the combination between certain professional politicians, certain professional labor leaders, and certain big financiers, from the disgrace of which San Francisco has just been rescued, a repetition of the successful efforts by the Standard Oil people to crush out every competitor, to overawe the common carriers, and to establish a monopoly which treats the public with the contempt which the public deserves, so long as it permits men, like the public men of whom I speak, to represent it in politics, men like the heads of colleges to whom I refer to educate its youth." The outcry against stopping dishonest practices among the very wealthy is precisely similar to the outcry raised against every effort for cleanliness and decency in city government, because, forsooth, it will hurt business. The same outcry is made against the Department of Justice for prosecuting the heads of colossal corporations that is made against the men who, in San Francisco, are prosecuting with impartial severity the wrongdoers among businessmen, public officials, and labor leaders alike. The principle is the same in the two cases. Just as the blackmailer and the bribe-giver stand on the same evil eminence of infamy, so the man who makes an enormous fortune by corrupting legislatures and municipalities, and fleecing his stockholders and the public stands on a level with the creature who fattens on the blood-money of the gambling-house, the saloon, and the brothel. Moreover, both kinds of corruption in the last analysis are far more intimately connected than would at first appear— the wrongdoing is at the bottom the same. Corrupt business and corrupt politics act and react, with ever-increasing debasement, one on the other, the rebate-taker, the franchise-trafficker, the manipulator of securities, the purveyor and protector of vice, the blackmailing ward-boss, the ballot-box-stuffer, the demagogue, the mob-leader, the hired bully and man-killer, all alike work at the same web of corruption, and all alike should be abhorred by honest men." The business which is hurt by the movement for honesty is the kind of business which, in the long run, it pays the country to have hurt. It is the kind of business which has tended to make the very name high finance a term of scandal, to which all honest American men of business should join in putting an end. One of the special pleaders for business dishonesty, in a recent speech, in denouncing the administration for enforcing the law against the huge and corrupt corporations which have defied the law, also denounced it for endeavouring to secure a far-reaching new law making employers liable for injuries to their employees. It is meet and fit that the apologists for corrupt wealth should oppose every effort to relieve weak and helpless people from crushing misfortune brought upon them by injury in the business from which they gain a bare livelihood and their employer's fortunes. It is hypocritical baseness to speak of a girl who works in a factory where the dangerous machinery is unprotected as having the right freely to contract to expose herself to dangers to life and limb. She has no alternative but to suffer want, or else to expose herself to such dangers, and when she loses a hand or is otherwise maimed or disfigured for life, it is a moral wrong that the burden of the risk necessarily incidental to the business should be placed with crushing weight upon her weak shoulders, and the man who has profited by her work escapes scot-free. This is what our opponents advocate, and it is proper that they should advocate it, for it rounds out their advocacy of those most dangerous members of the criminal class, the criminals of vast wealth, the men who can afford best to pay for such championship in the press and on the stump. 
It is difficult to speak about the judges, for it behooves us all to treat with the utmost respect the high office of judge, and our judges as a whole are brave and upright men. But there is need that those who go wrong should not be allowed to feel that there is no condemnation of their wrongdoing. A judge who on the bench either truckles to the mob or bows down before a corporation, or who, having left the bench to become a corporation lawyer, seeks to aid his clients by denouncing as enemies of property all those who seek to stop the abuses of the criminal rich, such a man performs an even worse service to the body politic than the legislator or executive who goes wrong. In no way can respect for the courts be so quickly undermined as by teaching the public, through the action of a judge himself, that there is reason for the loss of such respect. The judge who, by word or deed, makes it plain that the corrupt corporation, the law-defying corporation, the law-defying rich man, has in him a sure and trustworthy ally, the judge who by misuse of the process of injunction makes it plain that in him the wage-worker has a determined and unscrupulous enemy, the judge who, when he decides in an employer's liability or a tenement-house factory case, shows that he has neither sympathy for nor understanding of those fellow-citizens of his who most need his sympathy and understanding, these judges work as much evil as if they pandered to the mob, as if they shrank from sternly repressing violence and disorder. The judge who does his full duty well stands higher, and renders a better service to the people, than any other public servant. He is entitled to great respect, and if he is a true servant of the people, if he is upright, wise, and fearless, he will unhesitatingly disregard even the wishes of the people, if they conflict with the eternal principles of right as against wrong. He must serve the people, but he must serve his conscience first. All honor to such a judge, and all honor cannot be rendered to him, if it is rendered equally to his brethren who fall immeasurably below the high ideals for which he stands." there should be a sharp distinction against such judges they claim immunity from criticism and the claim is heatedly advanced by men and newspapers like those of whom i speak most certainly they can claim immunity from untruthful criticism and their champions the newspapers and the public men i have mentioned exquisitely illustrate by their own actions mendacious criticism in its most flagrant and iniquitous form but no servant of the people has a right to expect to be free from just and honest criticism it is the newspapers and the public men whose thoughts and deeds show them to be most alien to honesty and truth, who themselves loudly object to truthful and honest criticism of their fellow-servants of the great moneyed interests. We have no quarrel with the individuals, whether public men, lawyers, or editors, to whom I refer. These men derive their sole power from the great, sinister offenders who stand behind them. They are but puppets, who move as the strings are pulled by those who control the enormous masses of corporate wealth, which, if itself left uncontrolled, threatens dire evil to the Republic. It is not the puppets, but the strong, cunning men, and the mighty forces working for evil behind, and to a certain extent through the puppets, with whom we have to deal. We seek to control law-defying wealth, in the first place to prevent its doing evil, and in the next place to avoid the vindictive and dreadful radicalism, which, if left uncontrolled, it is certain, in the end, to arouse." sweeping attacks upon all property upon all men of means without regard to whether they do well or ill would sound the death knell of the republic and such attacks become inevitable if decent citizens permit rich men whose lives are corrupt and evil to domineer in a swollen pride unchecked and unhindered over the destinies of this country we act in no vindictive spirit and we are no respecters of persons 
If a labor union does what is wrong, we oppose it as fearlessly as we oppose a corporation that does wrong, and we stand with equal stoutness for the rights of the man of wealth and for the rights of the wage-workers, just as much so for one as for the other. We seek to stop wrongdoing, and we desire to punish the wrongdoer only so far as is necessary in order to achieve this end. We are the staunch upholders of every honest man, whether businessman or wage-worker. I do not for a moment believe that our actions have brought on business distress, so far as this is due to local and not world-wide causes, and to the actions of any particular individuals. It is due to the speculative folly and flagrant dishonesty of a few men of great wealth, who now seek to shield themselves from the effects of their own wrongdoings by ascribing its result to the actions of those who have sought to put a stop to the wrongdoing. But if it were true that to cut out rottenness from the body politic meant a momentary check to an unhealthy seeming prosperity, I should not for one moment hesitate to put the knife to the cancer. On behalf of all our people, on behalf no less of the honest man of means than of the honest man who earns each day's livelihood by that day's sweat of his brow, it is necessary to insist upon honesty in business and politics alike, in all walks of life, in big things and in little things, upon just and fair dealing as between man and man. We are striving for the right in the spirit of Abraham Lincoln when he said, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all wealth piled by the bondsman's two hundred and fifty years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said three thousand years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in. Sincerely yours, Theodore Roosevelt. The Honorable Charles J. Bonaparte, Attorney General. End of chapter 12, part 3.